Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 11 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. Thank you ever so much for downloading us, whether that be on iTunes, Podbean, or IWN, the International Wrestling Network. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayers, and I'm joined, as ever, by my esteemed co-host, Mr. Liam Happ. Liam, how you doing? I'm pumped, Dean. Absolutely pumped. It's WrestleMania week, isn't it? WrestleMania yeah. week! Oh, I suppose uh, the way I should phrase it, because obviously we're, we're recording this. Basically, we're recording this before WrestleMania. It's going to go up after WrestleMania. So by the point that you're listening to this, you'll know that Roman Reigns wins. But yeah, well, I mean, get leading into it, I think we're all absolutely excited, aren't we? But yeah, let's uh, just have a moment of silence because obviously no one was expecting John Cena to be mauled by the escaped bear from New Orleans Zoo. And a full investigation is underway, uh, and obviously lessons will be learned. Three and a half stars, though. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so we are we are we're joined by a guest. We have another guest on. Um, they've obviously been told good things about the this podcast by our previous guests, um, and I am very pleased to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Ash Rose. Good evening, Ash. Good evening, gentlemen. Big fan of the podcast. I don't need a guest to tell me how good it is. I'm a big fan of looking back at all this WCW brilliance from uh, back in the day. Wouldn't necessarily call it brilliance, but but we appreciate the sentiments. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm a bit. I was a big WCW boy like Liam, so yeah, I was on that side of the Monday Night Wars. So absolutely, as, yeah, I was a big. I was on that side of the fence. So as as bad as most it's been, uh, there's still just that lovely appreciation, isn't there? Watching what we're going to talk about today back as well, it brought out so much memories. Of, uh, of all those days, so I'm looking forward to going through it with you guys. Great stuff. We'll get to uh, we'll get to that in a moment. We'll we'll uh, reveal the the show that you have chosen. But for those people listening to this, who you may not know who you are, tell our adoring public who is Ash Rose. Oh, that's a that's a, that's a long could be a long winded question. Um, in, in the wrestling world, I, I guess um, people will best know me as one quarter of the Gorilla Position podcast, um, which is one of the UK's biggest sort of WWE podcasts. I've stepped over the line in my latter-day careers to WWE, as we all have, um, and especially in this WrestleMania week. Um, I also write wrestling stuff for TalkSport, um, and then on the football side of things, I'm an editor of Kick Magazine, the UK's biggest selling football magazine for kids. There's that cheap plug. Uh, as well as host of Alive and Kicking, which is a 90s football podcast, which Liam's been part of in the past. So, yeah, it's a, which goes down quite well, and it's a very 90s, as again, we're going to talk about today. Beautiful. So the, the Gorilla Position podcast, that's linked in with TalkSport Station, I believe. 
Um, it, it was uh, it actually they sort of parted ways uh, in in the end of last year, so it's gone a bit on its own solo run now. It was part of a stable, and now it's gone on a, a singles run to to see what he can do. But yeah, it was for a long time part of the stable hold. I'm still kind of one foot in the Talksport camp, but um, Gorilla Position was part of their kind of brand. But now it's more linked to Sky Sports. Actually, they they do a deal with Sky Sports that's on their platforms as well. Um, but yeah, it's 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 trying to do it stand on its own two feet and, and see how uh, how bigger that little gorilla can grow. I see. How, so, how did that all get started? How did you get involved in that? Um, I know host the main host of the show, James Delo. Um, I met him at various WWE events because I've covered WWE um, for a long time um, for kids magazines. I do a lot of work for WWE Kids Magazine as well as a, a plethora of other kids mags. So, I've always been in and around uh, the industry. And, and, and events and stuff and just met James he was looking to sort of restructure the show at the time um, it, it wasn't working the way he wanted to uh, at, at that moment so he got me and a couple of other people he knew on board and the chemistry was one of those things here where you get three sort of random people in the room who don't know each other that well but it just seemed to work and we've since added a fourth member and uh, it's, the rest is history I guess is the, the cliche Indeed, awesome. So that is the uh, gorilla position. So how can uh, how can people uh, get hold of you and find you on social media, Ash? Uh, well, my personal one is at Ash Rose UK, both on Twitter and Instagram, where I'm usually chatting wrestling or football. So it's usually one or the other. Uh, if you want to follow the gorilla position show, it's at WWEGP. So there you go. Awesome. Thank you very much. Right. And uh, can you tell us, Ash, what pay-per-view from the vast history of WCW have you chosen? Yeah, it's a hard choice because there's so many I could have gone for. There's so many back in the day that I really enjoyed and and enjoyed looking back on. Because I mean, I'm a big fan, as I said, of WCW. Um, I was part of the, you know, watching it on night on the uh, TNT, wasn't it, back in the day? Oh, yes. After Cartoon Network, I used to sit there, used to tape Raw, but watch a Nitro because I was a bigger WCW fan. That was more important to me. Um, and I used to be gutted that you never got the pay-per-views. It used to be one of those things. I used to sit there on a Monday morning waiting for WrestleZone as it was back then, one of the first sort of real wrestling websites and that slow internet to, to do the results and stuff. Um, I remember Starcade when Goldberg got beaten. That was one I was desperate to find out. But the pay-per-view I've actually chosen is kind of at the very height of the fact that I was still sticking with WCW. It lost the Monday Night War by that point, but I was still in complete denial that I thought it was the better company. We have gone Bash at the Beach 1999. Bash at the Beach 99. Right. So, yeah, we uh, we all spent uh, three hours of our lives we watching did. this. <laughs> uh, with, with, I think it's safe to say, would you not agree here, Liam, one of the most because WCW main events you could ask for? Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> oh, so... I'm sorry, Liam. Yeah, no, you're not. Um, <laughs> no, no. I, I think to, to, the best way to put this politely is that, you know, we covered... We, we started this podcast with a little mini chapter covering from the peak Starcade 97 to the final pay-per-view WCW Greed and just how they blew it in such a short period of time after being so hot, so popular and getting guys like uh, the three of us into the product so much. Um, I think one, one of those little subdivisions of, of their plight that we really didn't go in depth on is something that Ash has brought up here which is that period of the Eric Bischoff era where you know we, we, we covered 98 where the product started to stink and get stale but the numbers were hot but as the death of WCW book with uh, R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez always said 
Um, the the lasting effect to your business is never going to be instant. So it became clear in '98 the way things were going: no upward mobility, stale things, the same old guys. And 1999 was where the rot really began to show. Case in point: this pay-per-view because you know before it's slambery the great american bash there's a lot of crap to get through but i don't know if they get quite as bad as bash at the beach which has a, and i'll explain why when we get there it has a legit contender depending on your, your exact criteria it has a legit contender for the worst match in wcw history strap yourselves in here we go so um after a, an opening title sequence that is enough to give you an epileptic fit uh we go to tony shivani now uh, as i'm sure you know ash we always like to uh keep tabs on the opening gambit of tony shivani and his hype and uh today today it's um that this is the one event in the summer that separates the men from the boys uh whatever that means we have a two-man commentary crew tony shivani is joined by bobby the brain heenan both men are wearing hawaiian shirts and our main event is and we'll we will go into this in much more depth later on but our main event is a tag team match for the WCW World Heavyweight title. You know, the, the singles title in, in a tag match. Um, and Shivani tries to explain that anyone, including his own tag team partner, can pin the champion Kevin Nash to win the title. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll ask Liam who the fuck thought this up a, a little bit later on. Uh, we then go to Mean Gene, who's wearing sunglasses and a natty Hawaiian shirt. He looks... He looks kind of seedy. Um, <laughs> he then teases news on the WCW hotline that will apparently shake the whole wrestling world. So now he sounds seedy. Uh, we throw to Mike Tanay, who is in the junkyard that will host the first ever, and as it turns out, last ever junkyard hardcore invitational battle royal, which I'm so looking forward to talking about. Um, this has been held because the WCW president, Ric Flair, has banned any hardcore matches in the arena, so Hardcore Hack or the Sandman to you and I has invited people to participate in this unsanctioned match, but he teases that people from outside of WCW might even be involved so having had all of that we go into the first match which is one of because wcw's favorite wrestlers ernest the cat miller against a man who has uh, recently raised the ire of cody Rhodes on social media disco inferno um miller is accompanied by sonny ono and that really doesn't make any sense to me because miller doesn't need a manager because he's really good at talking and he's got a manager who doesn't talk um miller cuts a promo while uh, Sonny Ono stands silently in the background and, and in case you're wondering Sonny Ono was on a salary of $160,000 a year for this um, we start with a dance off Miller attacks Disco during his dance the crowd do seem into things though and we're, we're opening with two larger than life characters who fans are familiar with uh, Miller has a chance to pin Disco he wastes time he only gets a two count the end of the match comes when Miller goes to put one of his red shoes on but Disco stamps on his foot, takes the shoe, hits Miller over the head with it while the ref is distracted by Sonny Ono. But that only gets a two count. And then Ono distracts the ref again. This time Miller puts the red shoe on, kicks Disco in the head and gets the win. Uh, Ash, what do you think of this one? Oh, the cat. 
Ernest the Cat Miller, if they, I mean, he was such a WCW gimmick, wasn't it? Yeah, I was never a fan of either. They're very much opening match fodder, aren't they, um, for WCW, especially Disco, even though he, he sort of went through a, quite a number of different storylines, even sort of bordering on the NWA walkback at some point. Um, but it was it's, it's just one of those stupidly fun openers in terms of let's get it out of the way. I think it's meant to get the crowd going. I don't know if it does or it doesn't. Um, you know, Ernest, for all what he couldn't do in the ring, was pretty good on the mic. Um, I think the only reason for Sonny Ono is to, to carry the fact that, you know, he needed those shoes to, to win the match. Because that's the, the hook that he uses, those deadly suede red shoes to hit to hit <laughs> yes. Disco Inferno. And I think even Bobby Heenan says, what's in those shoes? You know, I think Bobby actually is quite on form during this whole pay-per-view. He says some quite funny quips. I don't know if he's just fed up with the product or it's just being the, the same Bobby wit. But um, he is, is quite funny throughout the night. Um, just quickly going back to what you said about the, the opening as well, the opening package. It's one of those generic video game music things isn't it as well there's no kind of story to it it's just loads of images of the, the four guys in the main event um, yes. just go, just going for it as well and and, and you, you mentioned the Shivani Hyper Bowl at the beginning as well made me laugh but there's also the tagline for the event which is a tidal wave of trash talking body slamming to Sami Fury which is just a load of words. <laughs> just a load of random <laughs> words that sound like a beach it's just so WCW um, but yeah I mean I, there isn't much to say about this match. These guys, they were never going to give you a, a clinic or anything like that. I mean, it was for a dance off, but it's all about dancing, isn't it? As well as one of those stupid WCW gimmick matches. And I think it served its purpose as a, as an opening for this uh, for this pay per view. Say, Ash, could you do me a favour there a second quickly? Could you possibly read us that um, tagline again? But this <laughs> t- this time, what I need you to do is when you get to the word talking. Stop, and that includes do not say talking either. A tidal way of trash. There we go. There we go. That's much better. <laughs> that that is the tagline for this pay per view. Don't make any mistake about it. They added those extra words, but there's the tagline for this pay per view. Tsunami Fury is the one I'm, I'm impressed with. I mean, that, I mean, where did that come from? Do you know what it reminds me of? It's something that that was in fashion about a couple of years ago and is slowly now being phased out where, cause you'd see it like on, in, I'm thinking like in McDonald's restaurants and on, if you ever watch Sunday brunch on channel four, where you just have these, I think they call them word clouds. It was like these, mm. these random words loosely, loosely associated with the products. And it's just one of them of like, right, just throw almost literally throw a load of shit at the wall and see what sticks in word form. But uh, It's like yes. something of The Apprentice, isn't it? It's like watching them yes. try and work something out on The Apprentice, a load of words put together, and that, oh, that sounds impressive. That sounds quite menacing. No, it's just a load of jumble. Really, really is. You know, if Alan Sugar was in the booking committee <laughs> meetings, maybe some of this wouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, but then again, he has uh, he has Karen Brady with him and she appointed Avram <laughs> Grant. So she can't talk about as we move into the football. Um, Liam, we always talk about the art of the opener. What do you reckon to this one? Oh, well, if we're going to start there, there's actually a few positives to be had. As you guys have mentioned, yeah, we've got two over here. And you, and you mentioned... Ernest Miller, you know, he always gets a little bit of love from Dean and I. Disco Inferno's right up there with him. We, we've both, I think we've listed both of these guys as guilty pleasures of the pair of us. They're mm. entertaining guys. Uh, there's no real issue here if they're what, I think, you know, obviously they probably spent Nitro setting this up, but if there is a feud here, it's younger than the last pay per view, so it's not much of an actual 
built up story or the sort of thing that people get invested in which is the sort of thing we say should be later on the show it's relatively cold it's two entertaining people they can go out there and yeah, they they garner a bit of a reaction it's not a great match they're not great workers but as far as what match you're going to pick to open the show this is this is a great choice so i understand it for that but yeah it's a it's a pretty throwaway match i mean it was it was full of you know it was full of action there's things happening all the time and it engaged the crowd you know which is pretty much the purpose of 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 the opener i guess getting getting people warmed up and that is something even critics of wrestlers like disco and the cat something that gets left on the table a lot is the fact that work rate wise both of them were usually very high you know they weren't lazy workers they were generally covering a lot of yardage in that ring moving around a lot always doing something if they weren't doing something physically they had the wherewithal to interact with the fans which is obviously that's a lost start in wrestling in some circles today so they had that going for them they're, they're not great but they know how to entertain a crowd and for the if you, we're, we're watching this on the network and we're going to look at it with cold reviewers eyes like a lot of people are who are sad enough to watch a, a WCW pay-per-view from 20 years ago on a, on a subscription <laughs> service so we're all in the same boat we're going to look at this we're going to look at this like we're mini melters and say look it's not very good in a lot of senses live crowd appreciate it not you know, I've heard louder pops but it warmed them up yeah so mm. you know if we if we do the old Scott Keith rating of either thumbs up or thumbs down for each segment I'd give this a thumbs up yeah. the two guys as well that were completely sort of worse with their characters didn't they they knew who their characters were they lived their characters you kind of believed their characters I think Ernest Miller's probably a little bit like that in real life just turned up about 10 so I think that gives them something as well when they when some believes the gimmick you kind of go with it don't you <laughs> Having uh, having met Ernest Miller in real life, I can <laughs> totally confirm that. It yeah. is, he is the same guy, but yeah, with the volume turned up a, a tiny bit, a tiny bit, yeah. Okay, moving on, we have uh, boxing referee and, and legit judge Mills Lane over at the WCW.com location. He'll be refereeing our Bagwell v. Piper boxing match later, and they're talking about comparing this to Tyson v. Holyfield, which Lane officiated and asking how much slack he'll be prepared to give, which is a hell of a giveaway to what's going to happen later on. Um, we have Could a anyone recap- else like not hear Mills Lane without thinking a celebrity death match? <laughs> Probably his greatest contribution to, to society, to mainstream. Yeah. yeah. As soon as he's opened his mouth, I was like, oh god, I can see a plastic stone cold walking around somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's Bill Goldberg, mate. His name is. Yeah. Oh, that's harsh on Bill. <laughs> I know it is, but it was right there in front of me, and I have to oh, take yeah. it. So we have a recap about how Flair banned hardcore matches in WCW and I'm thinking, okay, it's the battle rule next. But no, we then get another recap of Van Hammer going into uh, Ric Flair's dressing room or office asking him for a title match and Flair gleefully telling him he can have a title match, but it will be against Rick Steiner, whose uh, gimmick appears to be at this stage of time. Uh, that he's someone who beats the living shit out of people. So art imitates life there. Um, so, yeah, match number two is for the WCW World Television title, Rick Steiner v. Van Hammer. And I've got to ask, how how did Van Hammer come back? Because 
I remember him in the, like, the early 90s, the sort of the 92, 93 time with this awful like heavy metal rock guitarist gimmick where he came out with a guitar that he clearly couldn't play. And then he, he was never any good. Then he disappeared. And then all of a sudden he comes back again. It doesn't appear to have improved a lick. I, I always remember he, he had that one, you know, he'd come out with a guitar strap around him and he'd have that one thing where he spun it around his, his head and arm. Yes. He had the strap on, didn't he? He could literally just do that one thing. Um, as far as I'm, I'm actually. Didn't he come back as the um, the hippie character first of all, and then he transcended into this what we see on this pay per view, which is more of a straight lace sort of watered down test version. Oh, um, he was in the flock. Yeah, he came oh, back as Raven's flock. flock. Yeah, he's yeah. in the flock. Yeah. See, I I looked him up on Wikipedia during, you know, after this match, and there there is like a three or four year gap where he was totally unaccounted for also known as under a big money wcw contract but not on tv mm-hmm. uh see see also lanny poffo probably the most famous one but uh yeah just uh strange out of all the people you could uh you could bring back but anyway this this is a a hard hitting match as, you, as you'd expect from steiner the ref gets thrown down by rick steiner nothing is done uh, Van Hammer hits a low blow on Steiner right in front of the ref and nothing is done. The match builds to the outside. Um, Van Hammer smacks Steiner with a chair to the head, which Steiner barely sells. Steiner then kicks Van Hammer low, literally right in front of the ref, who again does nothing. Um, moments later, Steiner hits a top rope bulldog for the pin to retain the TV title in about three minutes. Not a great match by any stretch of the imagination. Didn't you know, It seemed just to be to blow off a very brief angle. Yeah, because I remember rightly, he just walked into President Flair's office and demands a title match. And obviously Flair was going through this mad president gimmick at, at the yes. time, just after his stint in uh, in the madhouse, um, which is always always fun from, from Ric Flair. And I mean, Van Hammer, I mean, Tony Giovanni calls him one of the hot young stars as he comes out. And as you say, Dean, he was there in 1992. Hot young yeah. star. He's been through about six gimmicks. He, he was but... 38 at this point. 38, 39 <laughs> at this point. <laughs> awesome. So I don't know what Shivani's been smoking in Florida that weekend, but yeah, he calls him a young star. But yeah, I mean, not only did they do low blows, at one point, Rick Steiner tries to pin Van Hammer on the outside. So did no one give him the memo that this wasn't a no DQ match or was that something changed on the fly? As I, per I think Steiner's just a moron, personally. <laughs> didn't didn't he run for like local political office out when he retired? I'm sure he did. I don't know if he got anywhere, but... He's not someone I'd vote for. I want to see his brother run for political office. The big bag booty daddy. Imagine the... They uh, say all men will create equal. Vote Steiner or the tiger will get you. (laughs) Just imagine every every famous Scott Steiner promo, but done as a political debate entry. (laughs) Holler if you hear me, Liam. Holler if you hear me. He's got 141 and three quarters chance of winning that election. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very... Again, it's moving on, isn't it? There's nothing really to say. I mean, I think the match wasn't even four minutes long and you know Rick Steiner retains and I don't think we see Van Hammer much after that until he joins the uh, the Misfits in action and uh, is he General oh, Stash? Oh, yeah. Yes. No he yeah. was he no. was he was Private Stash. Private see the stash. joke yeah. Private Stash. He actually he actually complained to Creative because Private is the lowest ranking officer and he didn't want to be perceived as the lowest ranking member of the group even though it's you know dude they are all innuendo names you fucking bellend 
yeah. but um, it's not GI Bro. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to rewind on this issue because I did have a little look, and you were right, Ash, about this hippie gimmick thing. Was yeah. after he got kicked out of the flock. So this is less than a year from before this event that he's at now. He basically. At the start of 1999, he just did a, a hill turn out of nowhere and became more of a you know, anti-pacifist. He's referred to, and obviously he's got he's got like the your typical generic bad guy music, your generic bad guy beard, your generic bad guy attire, and he's yeah, got he was the word peace crossed out on his singlet. Hasn't mm, it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it doesn't get more anti-pacifist than that, does it? Um, <laughs> and he he basically squashed a bunch of you know the Mikey Whipwrecks and guys like that. He just battered them he was a hill and yeah he, he because he was winning a few matches that's where that conversation with Flair happened I believe on Thunder could be wrong and yeah so like yeah you're going to fight so so this match not only is it a crap match it's hill versus hill no point to it absolutely cold match uh, but I want to the, the the whole thing where you pointed out the low blows was the one for me because you've got a, a a repeated series of kicks to the groin and this for me is the first of several cases of symbolism you'll see for this pay-per-view on this show and this is the first one a series of kicks to the nuts that is that is symbolism number one for bash at the beach 1999 and what it is to the viewer i'm looking forward to the others and uh don't forget at home to uh, check off your symbolism bingo card. And if you do get a full house, then uh, do contact us on Twitter at because WCW. Uh, we uh, go back to the junkyard and it's now getting dark, which obviously will help us see what's going on perfectly. And we're told that hardcore hack will be there as well as uh, Brian Nobbs and Hugh Morris. But because it's uh, an invitational and the man who's uh, invited them is a, a drunken loon, we don't actually know who's going to be in it, but more on that very, uh, very soon. Um, match number three is another title match. This is for the WCW United States title with Dean Malenko challenging the champion David Flair. So David Flair was awarded the title by his father just a week before after Rick, uh, as uh, you said, Ash, in his maniacal president stage, uh, strips Scott Stein of the title. David comes down to the ring in a flare robe. He's accompanied by Tory Wilson, Ric Flair, Arn Anson, and Asia. So just, just a few people there. Um, David and Rick have matching haircuts, as does little mate Charles Robinson. Um, the commentators make it clear David Flair is a totally undeserving champion, even calling the situation embarrassing. Um, as you'd expect, Malenko dominates him in the match. He locks in the cloverleaf, which prompts Arn Anson to jump in the ring and hit him with a spine buster, which the camera misses. Malenko then slams Asia, puts her in the cloverleaf as Charles Robinson gets in the ring to officiate. Rick hits Malenko over the back of the head with the title belt, puts David on top, and uh, Robinson counts to three. At least it was brief. That's about all I could say on that one. Oh, I could say a lot on this, Dean, to be honest. I mean, I think David Flair, I think I had this discussion with uh, one of my guerrilla position uh, fellow members before. Is he the worst sibling of all time in the wrestling world when it comes to performances? I mean, he was never really born 
to be on crap camera as a uh, any sort of talent in any company not like old charlotte obviously so to see him here kind of deer in the headlights it, it, it's bad um the only thing I, I would say that i do like about this whole angle was little nature i still call charles robinson little nature it's never yes. gone away for me he's, same here yeah he's so brilliant in that role because it's so it's a very little nuanced thing but it, it kind of is one of the only things that works in that whole angle it just it makes you laugh you can genuinely see that little nature loves rick flair and it just kind of works when he went through that stage of wearing the robe i thought it was fantastic really really made me laugh um but as for this match i mean again well it lasted less than four minutes it wasn't even a match um the only notice i've sort of written down was uh david's sort of bin liner type attire which was yes. definitely nothing from the flair fold that he'd seen before um tory was dressed very nicely i must say though yeah, back in her heyday yeah um but yeah, it was one of those weird angles. It's just part of this whole kind of crazy Ric Flair thing, wasn't it? Giving it the title to his son. Um, there's one thing, and I don't know if Liam may remember this, that I've mentioned many times before, and I feel like I'm one of the only people that ever remember it. Just before this, when Rick was in the uh, the mental home, as they called it, um, the loony bin, whatever derogatory term they like to call it, when he was going through that. And they used to have sort of segments on Nitro of them going back and seeing Flair with all the inmates, very kind of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And there was one scene in the middle of one of the nitros where he's walking through the uh, uh, department. He's not wearing it. I think he's wearing the robe backwards and something like that. And Scott Hall appears out of nowhere, does the kind of scaredy cat hands thing and goes, Ooh, no one mentions anything. It's never mentioned again. And I feel like I'm the only one that ever remembers it. But I'm hoping Liam, with his kind of encyclopedic knowledge of WCW, remembers that moment as well. Please don't say I'm going mad, Liam. You're going mad. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they'll, be, they'll, be, they'll be sticking you in that asylum next. Yeah, no, I, I don't remember that. It was a very... They, they just thought they'd have a bit of fun, I guess. It's a very yeah. in-house, Easter egg-ish little nod. <laughs> he's 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 having his own personal troubles. Bear in mind, six months ago, this same company was giving him an alcoholic gimmick while his life was falling apart around him. Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise. But yeah, it was one of them little things. But here's the thing: like on paper, the storyline has foundation. The whole thing has foundation. You remember, the Horseman came back when Ric Flair returned to the company last yeah. year. He feuded with Bischoff, he ousted Bischoff, he took over, power, you know, as they say, absolute power, corrupts absolutely. So he's starting to turn heel, he, you know, gives himself the title. And they did a, at least early on, it was very interesting because of where it looked like it was going to lead. But we had that part where Dean Malenko in this match and Chris Benoit, his partner at the time, um, grew sick of being in the Horseman because... Art imitates life. They were being marginalised by the old fuddies such as Flair and Anderson within the Horsemen. So this was the start of what became the revolution where you had also Perry Saturn and uh, Shane Douglas. Mm. And this whole thing, you know, he mad with power, he puts the US title on his boy. It, it all makes sense, but it was just absolutely abysmal to watch because as you touched upon, David Flair can't handle the role. You mm. I felt... It was very recently. Um, what what podcast was it, Dean? Where we were talking about oh, it was Robert, Robert Fuller. Fuller. Robert Colonel Fuller, Rob Parker, yes, extremely experienced wrestler. So as far as actually doing his job goes, he's very good at what he does. And then he comes out and he portrays and like a, a clueless, inept manager who shouldn't be in the ring, but he's getting his comeuppance, or in this case, actually pins Medusa. But yeah, you know, we went on that run. Point is, you can get an experienced hand to play an inexperienced character, and this role was 
begging for something like that, but obviously David Flair's his real life son. I always remember, you know, I was I was a big Power Slam reader at the time, and I'll always remember Finn Martin's editorial in his little "What's Going Down," you know, the little results thing mm. he'd have at the start yeah. of every issue. Uh, and he, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said the storyline would make a really good take on wrestling's history of nepotism if David Flair didn't make David San Martino look like Bret Hart. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Is they've got something that should work, and it should be because they did. You know, a couple of months before the show, they they were threatening to run a new blood millionaires club sort of thing which is what we got a year later only booked by Vince Russo on seemingly on speed or maybe that's just him um bro bro <laughs> and obviously the roles were reversed you had the the new guys playing the heels where the audience actually were clamoring for fresh faces but they all they threatened to almost run something. I don't know, you know, it probably wouldn't have led to them actually catching WWE back up because WWE was well past them before and they were shit hot. But it could have stopped the rot if they'd have run with this whole, you know. And it started with the the four horsemen splitting apart. Malenko, Benoit, Saturn, you know, you do this, you, it, it, on paper, it, it could lead into something decent, and it didn't, it was just, we got this, I think, Benoit, Mercy flushed the title reign, and lost it to Sid fucking Vicious, and that was that. Yeah, just a strange bit of trivia is that the uh, match number two and match number three went exactly the same amount of time to the second, three minutes and five. And they <laughs> both felt like an eternity. Yeah, the Rick, the Rick Steiner one felt like a much longer match because at least this was full of shenanigans. But yeah, yeah, and at least um, at least Malenko or Flair didn't try and break anyone's neck on the finish. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So uh, it's now time for Rap versus Country oh, Western. Yes. Uh, the battle we have all been waiting for. Uh, we see Kurt Hennig greeting the No Limit Soldiers, who are Eric Bischoff's latest waste of money, before crushing their CD. Because obviously back in 1999, we had actual physical CDs rather than downloads. Uh, we then see Hennig taking over the DJ booth um, on a nitro to play the new, his new song, um, I hate rap you know rap is crap uh, um, and then we see the music video for the song so they have actually gone to the time and they've, they've spent the time and the money to make an actual proper music video for this I hate rap song um, and again I'm just I'm looking at all of this and just thinking how much is all of this costing as the company continues to plummet into the red it is time for an eight man elimination match the No Limit Soldiers, which is uh, Conan, Rey Mysterio, Swole, um, and B.A. Brad Armstrong versus the West Texas Rednecks of Kurt Hennig, Bobby Duncan Jr., Barry Windham, and Kendall Windham. Um, to me, I don't know about the rest of you, but it's still weird for me to see Rey Mysterio without his mask on. Bizarre. Yeah, and he looks like 12 years old as well. Yeah, 
and he still pretty much looks like that now. But uh, I, rec- I reckon Rey Mysterio, without his mask, still gets asked for ID when he tries to find <laughs> booze. Definitely. Um, Brad Armstrong is known as BA. He's uh, wearing camo pants and a bucket hat and basically completely ripping off his brother Road Dog's look over in WWE. And I think I've mentioned this to you before, Liam. I've always thought Brad Armstrong was just such an underrated, great, great wrestler. And to me, it's just really sad to see such a good wrestler being reduced to doing this yeah well that that's the shame of it is that yeah he's a very good wrestler but he just never could connect with an audience never could find that that winning formula uh yeah. as a personality and as a result he became a bit of a chameleon where he just gets slotted into all these roles almost like you, you know you get a history of professional footballers who are very they say great on the training ground you know hard workers cover lots of yards during football matches but they end up being brought off the bench in one of six different football positions because they're not actually good enough to start in any of them and that was kind yeah. of what Brad Armstrong was in the wrestling world he's, he seems very out of place in this group you know you know, they're yes. meant to be kind of like the cool kids that everyone wants to be and no disrespect to Brad Armstrong especially when he took the, the bucket hat off he did look like he rolled with Conan and Ray Jr and swole um, back after the match did he don't imagine them you know sinking a few bevies after the match together he looks very out of place in this absolutely. match absolutely yeah totally he's a very it's an odd person to have in to have in there but um they needed a fourth <laughs> but they needed a fourth and yeah. to be honest if you're desperate enough to have fucking swole as one of the four uh you you'll do anything yeah um, and i mean yeah because brad armstrong he had i mean he was a ragnar man he was bad street the masked member of the Freebirds. he was like any any sort of masked character is usually him and because he 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 was able to just, as you say, slot into any any role really. But um, yeah, the, so Conan does one of his promos talking about tossing salads and making potatoes, and no one really knows what he's on about. But um, the crowd generally don't seem to be all that interested in in this one. To me, I mean, Kendall Wyndham was never over. Bobby Duncan Jr. sort of came out of nowhere, and people don't seem to care about Master P, who's the the rapper who's been brought in at, at I believe Liam great expense. Yeah, he was one of that that fantastic Eric Bischoff cast of ridiculous musical hires. And um, I, apparently he's now worth $350 million. And he's had 13 albums. I didn't even know he was at the time. He's no. had 13 albums. I know. Crazy. He, he appears to be huge in his native country. But... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as you expect with an eight-man tag, it's fast-moving with people uh, tagging in and out. And yes, yeah, Swall is a, a former NFL footballer. They say about how he's trained under Brad Reingans, but that was absolutely years ago. And he's basically been refreshed in the power plant. But he, he just looks very much out of his depth. There's there's a thing I notice when I'm, if I'm watching a match with, with guys sort of in who are especially guys who are doing like matches in a promotion based around a training school where they, you know, they advertise these guys are still learning. And you can see, if you look at the person's face, you can kind of see the cogs turning where they're, they're concentrating so much on remembering what to do next and what, where they have to be and what they're going to do that they're so preoccupied with that. They're for, the, the, the motion doesn't look natural and they're forgetting to put any emotion into what they're doing. And, and that is basically what, what happens with, with Swole. He looks hopelessly out of his depth and he, he screws up the initial pinfall where he pins Duncan after 
Mysterio um, hits a springboard leg drop. And the match then seems to become just a bit of a clusterfuck, really. Uh, Armstrong is eliminated by Hennig. The crowd are fast losing interest. Kendall Windham is eliminated by Conan in another clumsy sequence uh, where they end up so near to the Rednecks' corner that anyone could have broken it up. Once again, we see the eliminated Redneck getting beaten up by the huge 4x4, who's Teddy Reed, who then came back again a few years later under another gimmick that didn't get over to stop him re-entering the match. We did indeed. Uh, Barry Windham's carried out in a fireman's carry by Chase, another member of the No Limit Soldiers. Conan follows, and they're both cheaply counted out. So it's Swole and Mysterio v. Kurt Hennig. Um, two on one with the baby faces having the numbers advantage, which surely should always be the other way around. Um, Hennig tries to leave the ring, but is stopped by four by four. Um, Mysterio climbs onto Swole's shoulders and eventually he hits a, a falling splash onto Hennig to win the match for no limit soldiers. Um, even Shivani mentions it was two on one at the end. And he says that, you know, not this, this may not have settled anything, which is a bit daft really, because then what's the point of having the match? My my last note here is that this was awful, but was a five star classic compared to the next match. <laughs> yeah, oh, Dean, there's so much I could say about this match. I think and this angle, I think we could do a whole podcast on it because at the time, and to my sins, and I even I even hate that phrase, but I'm going to say it at this point. Um, I was well into the the No Limit Soldier thing and the filthy animals. I was well into my hip hop at the time. I owned a Fubu shirt. Yep, I went to hip hop gigs. I've grown out of all that now. But at the time, I loved them. I really did. And I loved this whole gimmick. Not that I knew who Master P was even then, even when I was into hip hop. But I liked, I loved Rey Mysterio. I loved Conan, Baldy Baldy, Rowdy Rowdy, Hootie Hoo, and all that nonsense. Um, and then going back and watching it, it's almost like I'm going to throw a '90s analogy at you now. I don't know if you'll get it, but when I watch men behaving badly now, when I used to watch it when I was younger, I used to think Tony was the cool one. He used to make me laugh more. I thought he was, you know, the fun one. When I watch it now, I think Gary is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's maybe age has that effect on you. Because now I look I look back and I think the West Texas Rednecks are absolutely brilliant in what they're trying to do. <laughs> Especially Kurt Hennig, because he's on my Mount Rushmore of wrestling. He's one of my favourites of all time. So to, to see him do anything, whatever he does, even as bad as this, he does it well. Um, but that's what you mean. I think this was the end of this angle between the two, because Master P didn't even bother turning up for this match either. <laughs> so he was, this was winding down. It's weird that the faces outnumber the heat. What when would that you know wrestling 101 that doesn't make sense we're meant to be cheering the guys you know the baby faces who are against all odds they weren't against all odds here they outnumbered them um yeah and as you say complete cluster in in terms of the match and swole looked like another deer in the headlights um they kept going on about four by four at ringside and at his massive chest but reminds me of um, akin fenwer actually who plays a plays a wickham he's that kind of build wasn't he um, beast. the beast indeed who apparently i read on wikipedia i don't know if you guys saw this was once a bodyguard for robbie keen to keep the football uh, connections going which is nice. really 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 random mike tyson 50 cent and robbie keen i don't know how i don't know why robbie keen would need a bodyguard but maybe maybe you know got up to some mischief in la while he was there yeah. but maybe, maybe well, you just want uh... an excuse to meet the beast Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whereas, of course, Seamus was a bodyguard for you too. No, of course, yeah, no, nice, yeah, nice connection there. But yeah, I think this was enough from this angle. I think they kind of used everything they could, every bit of money, every bit of everything they can from these two sets of teams because I think they parted ways after that in terms of the feud and the filthy animals went on to, to feud with someone else. But yeah. um, I think the West Texas Red, uh, the West Texas Rednecks, easy for me to say, in the, isolated on their own, were a fun little gimmick. I think they could have done a bit more with them if they'd given them a bit more time. I love the song. Rap is crap. It, 
it is a it is a, a catchy song. Not not quite in the uh, the realms of with my baby tonight. But no, I, of course. Yeah. I I want to go back to a couple of things you said about this because this, this match is such a glorious fucking mess, and it's better to have. A, I suppose it's better to have a glorious mess than a, a depressing mess, and we've got plenty of those coming up on this show. Um. You said about how hindsight or, or retrospect has, mm. ha, has changed who you favoured in this match. Biggest problem this match has is the the fans of WCW, predominantly a southern US organisation, yeah. going back to NWA days, they don't need retrospect to know that they like the country boys. They are <laughs> this whole feud. The the the, the natural baby faces, not just not just as you said, because they're outnumbered anyway. But they they are the guys who the fans who watch those you know week in week out. That admittedly they still had a massive audience who watched things like Saturday Night every week, going from the old days six oh five on TBS, a very deep rooted fan base that they 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 managed to run off them as well. And I don't, most of them didn't watch wrestling at all when WCW folded. And that fan base was very much a, a West Texas Rednecks kind of fan base. So, yeah. so when you had a song which was, you know, we, we have a week, you know, we, every episode we have a, a theme song thing. So we obviously love WCW theme songs. And there's a lot of good WCW theme songs. But Rappy's crap was up there creatively. It was actually one of the highlights of the company. But it just... The, the whole thing was, was arse about face. Um, I also went to touch that, that first elimination when Swole pinned Duncan Jr. I got a little gem off the Wrestling Observer. That was actually not the planned finish. But apparently things got so messed up between Swole and Duncan Jr. While trying to work together to put together their little bit. That Duncan just got fed up and told Swole to pin him and get him out of there. Symbolism number two. Did I don't even note that Swole got eliminated from this? Did he? No, he won. He was part of the winning, wasn't he? Of course, he did. Sorry, yes. And so, yes, and so he told him to pin him, and he he didn't in the end, did he? It was Mm. Mysterio. Yeah, uh, and Conan got counted out, uh, which was meant to be him and Wyndham getting both counted out. The thing is, is Wyndham actually brawled with Chase Tatum, who's one of their four million seconds. So that's a kind of a disqualification. Uh, and those two actually brought to the back. Well, it looked like Wyndham was giving him a piggyback. And Conan actually just walks off. and He, doesn't he walks even, out with them, yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't even come back to celebrate with them. Apparently that's because he was very much in the doghouse at this point. He uh, did an interview with USA Today a month before this pay-per-view. I believe it was about a month before this pay-per-view. And basically shat on the company and said the product was getting stale. It's the same guys on top, blah, blah, blah. This is someone who works for the company saying this in USA Today. Major publication. Uh, at the time this was happening. This weren't like after those W folded. Uh, and to make matters worse, they weren't the only one either. I think Sting had criticised the company. But he's Sting and, and Conan's Conan, so one got yeah. punished, one didn't. Which is another because WCW aspect of it. But yeah, so Con- and one of the reasons Conan was very fed up, he revealed in a shoot interview, uh, not long after this, I believe he recalled this shoot interview in 2000, 2001. WCW was still up and running when he did this shoot interview. And he was saying the problems he was having with Kevin Sullivan at this time. And he pointed out the ridiculousness of this feud. The fact that the 
WCW's hardcore base are going to favour the heels, not the baby faces. You can't have so many members of the babyface group because it doesn't elicit sympathy. He ran through all these and like pretty much got brushed off. So yeah. he was very much fed up. And things like this continued to the point where, if you remember correctly, he was very nearly one of the radicals. But they managed yes. to talk they managed to talk him Douglas and Kidman into coming back with a company. I'm not sure what the cherry on the cake was for Conan. Maybe a lack of interest from WWE. I know that's what stopped Douglas because he'd actually burnt his bridge with ECW that time. Uh, Kidman, they said, yeah, come back, we'll put the US title on you. Spoiler alert, he never won the US title. So at this point, Conan was very, very unhappy very fed up and he was in the doghouse for letting it known how much and you can tell by the way he just walked out on this match symbolism number three yeah it was it, it was just a, it was just a mess wasn't it absolute it's mess a, it was a tidal wave of trash <laughs> yes yes indeed so I, I want to find a poster that says that I'm going to photoshop it just it's, on, it's on the wikipedia page oh nice I didn't notice that yeah, uh, I'll just, yeah. I'm just going to black out all the rest of the words <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so just just before we get to uh, the junkyard hardcore invitational battle royal let's uh, just talk about a few things uh, upcoming in the old calendar I've got a very busy month ahead because uh I'll be commentating on uh, a couple of big IPW events on Friday the 27th at the Westgate Hall in Canterbury. We've got IPW's first ever all-female show, GRL. Um, that features uh, Kaylee Ray against Zaya Brookside for the IPW women's title and a whole load more. And then two days later, the 29th, uh, uh, we are at the Rochester Casino Rooms for the 2018 Battle Royale. Special guest there, former WWE star Emma, now known as uh, Tennille Dashwood. She is going to be featured there, uh, no doubt against someone who comes out on top in the women's show two days before. We've also got main event of title for title, the All England champion Mark Haskins takes on world champion and a man who's been displaying that belt on international TV recently, Austin Aries in a rematch for our previous show at Rochester. So that's going to be awesome. Also, if you're down Sussex way, uh, I'll be donning the old tea towel as the Twisted Genius heel manager on Saturday the 28th of April in Lansing at the Lansing Manor Centre. Uh, that should be good fun as well. And then, of course, um, can't wait for it. We've got, well, April 26th, a few day, a couple of days before that, I actually got an evening with Austin Aries at the Hackney Showroom in London that I'm hosting uh, with Kayfabe Events. The end of May, May the 25th and May the 26th, we've got an evening with Jimmy Havoc, the 25th in Hove and the 26th in Manchester. And then the big one, June the 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th is four evenings with Bret Hart in Brighton, Cardiff, Oldham and London, respectively. Uh, go to kfabevents.com to get tickets and for all the details on that. Okay, here we go. It is time for the the junkyard hardcore invitational battle royal. Where do we start with this? Well, well I don't know, Dean. I don't envy you. You start, but it's it. There's so much to say. <laughs> so, um, if you haven't seen this match, 
it's it's probably worth going out of your way to watch this. Not for the reasons people usually tell you to go out of your way to watch a match, but our referee Scott Dickinson, who I always thought we might looked exactly like Philip Martin from Neighbours back in the nineties, if <laughs> anyone remembers that. Yes. Um, yes, he's uh, on the outside of the perimeter fence with an air horn to signify the start of the match. The only way to win is to be the first person to climb over the fence. And there's basically a circle of, of scrap cars stacked up on top of each other, um, forming a sort of a ring. Um, and we've got some flaming braziers uh, to give us a bit of light and, and warmth, I guess, because it's pretty much pitch black by this point. Um, no one's actually said what the prize or the motivation for anyone to enter this match is. It's a trophy. A terribly made trophy. Technically, it's to crown the first hardcore champion. Although, if memory serves me correctly, there's no actual lineage with this because, you know, I won't spoil something that happened 19 years ago, but the winner of this match actually got injured very soon afterwards. So oh, I yes. believe they started over with the hardcore title. Right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, as I say, it's pitch black. Uh, so we, we now have a helicopter circling above to give us, A, a camera angle, and B, to shine a flashlight on the proceedings. And, and as I mentioned earlier, we don't actually know who the participants are because we haven't been given a, a list of who's in it. So basically, it's as the commentators are able to identify a load of wrestlers flailing around in the dark that they can be named. So... um. A car gets tipped over by uh, who the commentators think a public enemy, and you know, that, that could easily end in tears. People are taking bumps onto car roofs. We, we identify Silver King, Brian Nobbs, Fit Finley, Stephen Regal, Dave Taylor, and La Parker so far. Um, Bobby Heaton actually says it's impossible to commentate on this. Which, you know, if you can't commentate on it, Bobby, how do you think we can watch it? Um, apparently, there there were 14 people in this, and it was in a real junkyard somewhere in Florida as opposed to a set. Someone who isn't identified leaps off a car onto a group of wrestlers, and it looks like Hack's genuinely injured from la- catching them and landing on hard concrete. We see that Ciclope is in there with his mask on, Hugh Morris, Horace Hogan, and Mikey Whitbrick, who I'd forgotten was even in WCW by this point. Hack said that Raven was in here in a pre-match interview, but I've not seen him at all. And if he hasn't turned up, I don't uh, don't blame him for not turning up. Um, it also reminds me how many ex-ECW guys are in here, and, and you know, no wonder the, that company folded up as well. After ten minutes, we finally see someone trying to escape, which is Rocco Rock, but he gets pulled back down by Horace. Um, someone's been cut open, which is obviously uh, ideal in an environment with lots of dirt and rusty metal. Nothing can go wrong there. Um, Fit Finley gets stuffed into the uh, boot of a car or the trunk, as they uh, call it in America. Um, Someone else comes along in a forklift to lift the car up, but Finley manages to escape in the nick of time before the car gets put in a crusher. Um, Finley then kicks over a brazier, which actually sets the car on fire, presumably not on purpose and he climbs the fence unopposed because everyone's trying to escape the car that's on fire Uh, and after 13 minutes of this visual hell we end one of the most hideous debacles that WCW's put on since the Doomsday Cage match at Uncensored 96 Um, and it's also worth noting that several of the participants in this got legitimately injured after bumping onto cars or concrete 
Ash, how is your brain after that match? Mush, Dean. Absolute <laughs> mush. I remember watching the House of Horrors match. <laughs> Right, or when was that? Last year? Yeah, last year during that horrible Bray Wyatt Randy Orton feud and thinking I've never seen anything as bad as that. I'd forgotten about how bad the Junkyard match was. I, I, I think I watched it a few years ago because at the time we could watch pay-per-views in this country, so I wouldn't have watched it at the time. And I think I watched it a few years after that and then again a few years ago. But watching it again today, oh my days, it is absolutely abysmal. It's probably one of the worst things I've ever seen, not just in WCW, not just in wrestling, actually. It's... I, you have to go and watch it. You're right. It's not in any good way, but you, to see this is unbelievable. The danger factor for number one uh, for the competitors, the, the danger factor in watching it, because you don't even know what you're watching. Like Bobby Heenan said, it's full of these horrible camera angles, this helicopter cam. I don't know if they're doing that on purpose to make it look more dangerous, like they used to do like a chase on the news or that sort of scene from um, the detective show they used to do as well. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what reason is behind it other than the light, but it doesn't help the viewing uh, for, for, for here. And then, and then the people in it, you don't even know who's there. Stephen Regal rocks up in some strange attire. Um, Jimmy Hart's there with a bloody crash helmet on and directing wearing um regal's wearing i think like an ice hockey shirt yeah it? it's really random and then jerry flynn you know jobber to extraordinaire he's in there he does a spot where i think he tries to jump start a car or tries to do something to say a light in the sort of the opening stages it doesn't work and then he has to do it again really awkwardly um so it's just it's it's so bad it's just it is horrible. It makes, like I say, my, my, my brain was mush. There's car seats. There's people hitting with car. There, there are parts of cars I don't know the names of that are people getting hit with, which can't be, it just can't be right, can it? Because it's just a ridiculous notion. The fact that it's unsanctioned does my head in. If it's unsanctioned, why has it got a time slot in a pay-per-view? Why is there a referee there? But yeah, Liam, talk about it as well, because I, my, brain, my brain's to mush. I can't, I can't say anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to sum this debacle up in one phrase, and that is La Parker wearing fucking jeans. Oh, that is my, yeah, I've got that oh, on yes. the note. And a mask. Is it, is it wrong that I find that more offensive than everything else about this, which is pretty damn offensive? Yeah. But no, seriously, we've got we've got all these guys, you know... It, yeah, there's a there's a spectrum as to the talent of the you know there's there's a few stiffs in there, but everyone is working very hard and putting their their livelihood on the line as you said you know in a in a place full of glass and dirt and that it's, they, and they, fire. Yeah, they forget the fire. They are yes. ta- they are taking a, a lot of risks and they are working hard all for nothing because we can hardly see what's going on and there's things happening such as Cyclope doing a moonsault of three cars which doesn't actually get shown that you have to go you you rely on a report from the taping um, to find out that happened and there's your symbolism number four all these guys busting their ass for absolutely fuck all oh, man the, the fire spot by the way was planned the, oh, okay. uh, the idea is is that pretty much is what allows Finley to escape and everyone else can't because, you know, nothing screams hardcore like being the first one to run over a fence. But, man, even they they try and attempt to do, like, action-adventure drama, don't they, with the with the Finley in the car thing, and it's about to go, Who who's about to compact it and why? It's a, it's a 
you know, it's a, a hardcore wrestling match, but it's not a murder fucking race, is it? It's a, it's apparently, mm. someone's trying to compact him in the car. Yeah. The thing is, unfortunately, when... we we don't know who it is because I think it's David Taylor. Bad. I think it's oh. Dave Taylor. I think at one point because I was try- I went back and I think someone says Dave Taylor. I could be wrong because it's too dark to say, but I think it's well, Dave Taylor. Yeah. I was going to say we can't tell because it's too dark. Yeah, Dean and I did see it uncensored '96. Those two do like to get stiff with each other. Yeah, exactly. When they had that little fracas at the disqualification call but I didn't realise it went to trying to murder each other problem yeah. is is when they're doing this spot I think it's, is it hack that chucks him in the trunk of the car mm, yeah. you can tell the trunk is not closed it is it is patently obvious that the it's just open and ready for him to hop out whenever he wants so there's no suspense there either it's oh look he's going to be murdered oh the door's open it's oh my god and they focus on that spot like way too long as well. Like they go with the compressing of the car. It's like, yeah, we get it. He's not even in it, but they just keep the camera on this compressing car way too long and and say, oh, you know, if he'd been in it, but he's not. Move on. Let's, let's see what's yeah. happening elsewhere. It's it's booked. Just oh, it's a cluster. It's an absolute cluster. And uh, double checks. Yeah, this this hardcore trophy. They they claim it will be the first hardcore champion. It wasn't. They had a they had a final match of a tournament at WCW Mayhem their November pay per view, uh, which was won by Screaming Norman Smiley, the start of the Screaming mm. Norman thing, oh. and that was for an actual belt that lasted for just over a year. You remember the last champion was Meng, and he actually politely returned the belt back to the company before going and showing up at the 2001 Royal Rumble. Royal Rumble, yeah. Because he was out of contract, but yeah, he, he had the decent sell. I suppose the war, the war was well and truly over at this point because there was the opportunity for a uh, Medusa slash Rick Rude moment. But no, he, he handed the belt back and just showed up at the Royal Rumble, and that was the end of that belt. But this this absolute joke of a of a match wasn't even recognised as, as for an actual title Fit Philly was never recognised as a hardcore champion I'm sure he loses sleep over that but but yeah if you're wondering what I was referring to earlier when I, when I was saying that a good candidate for the worst match in WCW history was on this show no shit it's this one and the, ra- <laughs> yeah. the rationale is, is it, I'll use an example my pick for the worst wrestling move in the industry is the diving headbutt I think that's the worst wrestling move because not only does it look shit it leads to sad stories such as Dynamite Kid and even Chris Benoit and, and Harley Race's neck is messed up as yep. well yeah. and there are other factors there are other moves and there are other risks those men take that compound it but doing this move in every match especially when you work a full-time schedule is one of the chief things and when you look at that it doesn't look yeah what, what, what's that guy doing grazing my shoulder it looks horrible and this match is the equivalent of that so much damage was done so many injuries were sustained um, hack had a separated shoulder and a neck injury um, stitches in Hugh Morris's hand, and you just uh, with any lacerations. And as you said, you have to be happy that there's no uh, more permanent cases coming from running around a, a junkyard. Mikey Whitworth yeah. concussion, um, deep shoulder wound that needed 60 stitches for Silver King. Um, 
Oh, and there were there were that's just a few. I know for a fact there were there were tons of minor injuries. They're the they're the big ones that were reported like via uh, doctors' reports. So Meltzer got his hands on them, but you know you think think of all the the little niggles for for spots that weren't probably weren't televised, or if they were televised, you couldn't see them because there's no lights. So for all the effort put in, all the risks taken, all the injuries sustained, and the actual end result. WCW probably made money off the Doomsday Cage, as terrible as that was. It served a sort of per you, you know, you you were watching it and you got what you were getting out of it, even though what you were getting out of it was shit. Was you know, yeah. heroes conquer all. You get the narrative. Yeah. What was the purpose of this? There is none. Yeah, the Doomsday Cage was the the focus, the focal point of the pay per view, really. But yeah, yeah. this was just a a a match, which, as you said earlier, was unsanctioned and therefore you know by the letter of the law shouldn't have even been there. I mean, I, I'll tell you the thing that I just don't understand is I'm sure we've all been in there where, yeah, you, you, you gather, you might be around the, around the table at a pub or a meeting at work or whatever, where people are, you've got a group of people and they're like, yeah, they're brainstorming something and, you know, nothing's a silly idea. You just blurt out what you think. Then, you know, someone at some point would have said, oh, we could, we could have a battle Royal in a, in like a, a junkyard. And you'd think that, you know, someone would, someone that then would, would then think, well, actually, you know, it's a bit risky. Cars, dirt, wrestling moves aren't meant to be done on cars and concrete. But somehow, either whoever has brought up the, the dangers has been ignored, shouted down or overruled, or nobody's actually thought of the glaringly obvious dangers of this match, together with the fact that it's happening in the evening. They didn't even film it earlier in, in the in the daylight. Take that scenario, add a crack pipe, and you have got yourself a WCW booking committee. <laughs> I remember the... Um, didn't WWE do uh, John Cena Guerrero in like a parking lot thing with, with cars, which was oh, much that more was, staged? that was very good. There, there's yeah. been a few parking lot brawl matches, yeah, including, yeah, they, they, including they um, Finley Regal, weren't it? And yeah. Steve Blackman, Ken Shamrock, I think. That was a bit some... dull, that one, but it was, you know, with, it was relatively like, safe. Yeah. It served its purpose. But and it's he, done in a yeah. way, isn't it? Yeah, it's done in a safe way. It's lit well so we can see. The spots are kind of at least rehearsed. This, just, they look like, literally went to guys, go and go out there and do what you want. Make yeah. a name for yourself. And they obviously went to do that because they were trying to do it. Because obviously, look, the guys in this, they were very, they were low down the card. I don't want to call them jobbers because some great talent in there. But in terms of WCW at the time, they were very low down the card. So they were trying to get on the card, get a spot, make a name for themselves. So they were obviously going to go all out. But they should have. Been, I just can't believe they were let to do what they were allowed to do, and we weren't even allowed to see it. And as for coming over that cage door at the end, you could have walked through that. It was so like the most limp climb over a cage I've ever seen. It's just so even the ending wasn't even dramatic to this stupid cluster of a match. Yeah. I mean, do you remember the old, um, I think it was from the very first Uncensored in 95, the infamous Dustin Rhodes and um, Barry Darso, Blacktop Bully, when they were in the back of a, a moving truck. King oh, of the Road yeah. match. King of the Road, yeah. King of the Road, yeah. As stupid as that was, at least they filmed it during the daytime so you could see what was going on. Yeah, and, and then um, Dustin Rhodes bladed. So I didn't want to use most of the footage because they had a very no-no policy of blood and he got fired. But we'll save that gem for when we can't, because I know we'll cover Uncensored 95 <laughs> yeah. at some point. 
But but kudos to a man who can successfully blade himself with a moving truck without like giving himself a flip top head. So yeah, right. Moving on, let's move away from the uh, junkyard battle royal onto our next match. It's a uh, match for the WWE World Tag Team Championship. It's the Jersey Triad of DDP, Bam Bam Bigelow, and Chris Canyon against Perry Saturn and Chris Benoit. And the note I've written here is ask Liam to explain how this match came about because the recap doesn't actually make any sense. I think the the, the recap shows Buff Bagwell pinning Ric Flair. Yeah, so... Yeah, that, it's a very confusing recap, but basically we, you know, we touched upon that there almost was a old guard versus young lions thing coming about, and you can imagine why it didn't happen and who exactly vetoed it, brother. But along, the, I think around May or June, you had that little that split with Benoit Malenko getting fed up of being marginalised in the Horsemen. And around when that happened, there was actually one of the highlights of WCW 99 was a really good tag team championship feud, which started off as Raven and Saturn reuniting to fight the champions, Benoit Malenko. One of my favourite tag matches of all time was at Spring Stampede 99 between those two teams. They then entered uh, Ray and Kidman into the mix and they had a triangle match at Slamboree. All the matches were good. And from this, you had like it dovetailed basically with Benoit Malenko breaking away, Saturn joined their calls and you'd have DDP who held the world title, lost it to Nash, turned heel, uh, took on... Bam Bam Bigelow, and they served almost as like muscle for flair. And this is where you're starting to get that early revolution versus like the pre- the president's flunky sort of thing going on. Canyon was siding with Raven and Saturn, almost like a offshoot of the confusing feud all three of them had in 98 that we've touched upon a couple of times on this show. I think when we reviewed Bash of the Beach 98 very early on, we were talking about Raven, Saturn and Canyon. So they came together as a trio, Raven, Saturn, Tag Chance, but Canyon turned on uh, the duo and joined, and this is where the New Jersey Triad was born. So in the midst of what should be the revolution thing happening and you also buff Bagwell in a mix of it because I think he got that that recap showed an eight-man tag basically involving everyone I've just named in their respective sides and Bagwell got the pin it was quite a quite a big moment I mean I'm sure Ash will agree it was this sort of thing like you go to school and talk to those fans and say wow this is a big moment you know they're going to do this thing where the young guys are going to and and he got the pin over Flair you you forget or at the time you you don't know that everyone pins fucking Flair but (laughs) but at the time it seemed good and this was an offshoot of that but in retrospect we realised that it's as far as it got was you know what would later become the revolution and the New Jersey tried fighting over the tag titles. Mm. That was the match when they all did the figure fours as well, wasn't they? That match on Nitro, there was about four people doing figure fours on each I other. I think well. so, because we got we've we've got a, a Bagwell Piper match coming up that we'll cover more in depth later. Yeah. But that again, that is that is intertwined with this. It's funny how you you look, you see actual attempts at storylines that could and should make sense, but they're lacking the basic logic when they're actually produced that they have on paper they're lacking the right result they're lacking the the right direction and people got sick of it that is that is basically wcw in 98 and 99 for you 
That's neatly summarised it. Thank you very much. So let, let's move on to the match. The, the, the match graphic and Dave Penzer both indicate that it's DDP and Bigelow who will wrestle uh, with Canyon on the outside. But in fact, it's it's three of them and they, they switch between well, one in the ring, one in the tag rope and one outside. Um, so it is a three on two. So I suppose at least the heels have got the numbers advantage in, in this one. It's, it's a technically proficient match, as you'd expect, but the crowd do seem deflated. I think probably because they've had to sit through watching that battle royal on the big screen. Yeah. Saturn and Benoit single out Canyon and keep him well away from his corner. So, you know, the, the story of this match is they're trying to keep him away from his other two tag partners to nullify the numbers advantage. Um, but then Saturn gets outside the ring, gets ambushed by the others, and the heels take over. The numbers game then starts to tell. Benoit tries to take over on all three men. DDP goes up to the top to taunt the fans, loses his balance, falls over the top rope, but manages to land on his feet like a cat. Um, The thing I found with this was that this match was dragging, and as much as as talented as the people in the match are, it just, it just didn't seem to hold my interest that much or keep my attention or the crowds. Um, they seem to be more interested in something's happening in, in the crowd as opposed to what's happening in the ring. I don't know if any, if, if you two thought that as well or, or what? I think you're right, Dean. I think they'd been kind of just deflated, not just from that, you know, brilliant battle, uh, junkyard match, but also the, the elimination match as well. Cause that was a cluster as well. So two of those in a row, I think that they, they needed a break. And unfortunately for these guys, because I think it's not I mean there's no contest that it's a pride to win but it's probably the best match in ring of the night really yeah um, maybe with the opener as well which is saying a lot about you know the, the state of this card but I don't think they were really into it and maybe as Liam touched on there the the storyline going in was so intertwined and maybe not clear enough I don't think they were invested enough in the storyline at the time. I mean, I quite like the Jersey Triad. I think DDP as a heel was quite underrated. He's naturally a babyface, but he can do being a heel very, very well. And I'm a big fan of Bam Bam as well. I just don't think they were quite ready for this feud. And storyline terms, it hadn't really got to a place where the fans were invested in it. And maybe that had an effect on it. Well, case in point, they, you know, the tribe list off a bunch of catchphrases on the mic at the start, and none of them were over yet. No, a no. few, a few of them got slightly over later on, but within two months, they wouldn't really be a thing on TV much anymore. Um, I actually, I got the feel I could be wrong, but my personal opinion was it was actually the opposite. So um, this particular tag team feud this was the second pay-per-view for it because there was a tag title match of a similar nature at the great american bash and considering that we are now at a stage that everyone knows that we're not getting the young lions old lions feud the way it promised to unfold in may maybe early june and we're kind of going into the same old crap as you'll see in the main event shortly it's become clear that it's running out of steam, this particular food. It's it's keeping these guys in a certain place. It's being extended way beyond the story arc. The first match, so to, to have Saturn and Benoit, I just said we had um, Raven and Saturn versus Benoit Malenko was a tag feud in the spring with Rankin involved as well. When Flair had the power trip, kicked Benoit and Malenko out, the horsemen, uh, had the triad as his boys made sure they got to steal the titles thanks to Canyon turning hill that led to a thing out of necessity where 
theoretically Raven Sat and Benoit Malenko will find themselves on a, on the same side of the philosophical war about to unleash. I think there might have been an injury angle with Raven. I could be wrong because he did he did disappear for a couple of months and he came back with that Deadpool stable before he just had enough himself and quit. Um, so they did a thing where oh well there's a tag match going on. They're, they're, they've both got their right to a rematch. And so it end up being Saturn and Benoit teaming together, like odd couple, but united by the common cause. And they won the tag titles. And that, as well as um, Bagwell getting a shock pin over Flair, these things were getting reactions. And it looked like a really good storyline was going. But then six weeks later, we're kind of treading the same water with a longer, less interesting match than at the Bash, if memory serves me correctly. Uh, and it and it's already obvious to the audience that it's not really going anywhere. It's not going to be the big narrative of the company that it could be because we are still going to have the insular, old, fuddy-duddy only main events, if you catch my drift. Yeah. So that that was the problem there. Because there I, I remember there was a Piper, because Piper was a feuding with Flair and turned on Bagwell and sided with Flair. And when he did that, I remember they was doing a thing where they were beating him down in the ring on Nitro. And one of my fo- one of my favourite little tropes in wrestling, where it's two on one, and they call a referee down, and then Malenko runs down in in his just in his formal attire, and he hops up on the apron and takes his shirt off, and gets ready for a tag, to basically give him a you you know you've seen it happen a few other times, but that was a great moment. There was there was so many great little moments of promise about this whole thing but this match right here it's long winded it's repetitive from what we've already seen and it was just indicative of the fact that WCW wasn't actually going to change and that Benoit who'd who'd spent two years now in this role of just being put into roles where it looks like he's being showcased but he isn't continues to hit that glass ceiling as, as do the rest of them yeah, um, I mean, j- just to just to finish it off, the actual the end of the match comes when uh, Saturn lifts DDP up in a fireman's carry, turns him around, uh, his leg hits the ref just as Canyon throws powder in his face, um, but then DDP, this I like this DDP is also blinded, um, and he accidentally hits Canyon with the diamond cutter, but Bigelow puts Canyon's foot on the ropes. Um, Page then just kicks out of Benoit's German suplex literally in the nick of time his timing is absolutely magnificent the ref gets bumped again ddp takes out benoit and canyon accidentally with a metal bin but then hits a 3d style diamond cutter on saturn with biglow's assistance to get the win um this one went 23 minutes in the end but uh far too long for, far for, too long for a good finish but that was it yeah it drags a lot this match Okay, so match seven is our boxing match. Buff Bagwell v. Roddy Piper. So in true WCW style, they replay Mills Lehman's promo from Monday Nitro where he accidentally says that the match will be held in California before correcting himself and saying Florida. Uh, It's not like they had six days to edit the thing. We get Michael Buffer for the intros. It does make me think what Michael Buffer makes of announcing this works debacle of a boxing match. He introduces Mills Lane. Piper's got flair in his corner. He's wearing his regular wrestling gear. Bagwell comes out in boxing trunks, a silk boxing robe, and his trademark top hat. 
Not enough boxers wear top hats, if you ask me. Um, Bagwell announces that he's brought his own cornman or corner person to counter flare and introduces Judy Bagwell. His mummy. Yeah, there's nothing to get you over as a baby face like bringing your mum to watch your back. In full 90s haircut as well and big glasses. Yeah, to, to, put, to put this into perspective quickly, this is a guy, Buff Bagwell. You, you know, great natural heel. Very little redeeming qualities as a babyface. I think I actually just underlined his only babyface qualities that he ever showed was that he happened to find himself on that young side of, of again, you know, and this this feud is an offshoot of that. Young versus old, he's part of the young up-and-comers. Other than that, he's got nothing about him that screams babyface, similar to the No Limit Soldiers, and yet he's been put in that role, and they wonder why the reactions are as bad as they were when he came out. And also when Judy came out, there was no reaction, was there? Yeah, it was dead. The crowd were like, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. oh, great, it's his mum again, yeah. Because, oh. funnily enough, Judy Bagwell doesn't sell tickets. No. <laughs> Tell Vince Russo that as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the crowd, as you say, the crowd are, are virtually silent because um, yeah, Bagwell gets knocked down. Crowd are virtually silent. There's 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 just no concern for the baby face in peril here, which kind of echoes everything you've just said, Liam. Um, the bell rings to end round one. Piper gets a dig in after the bell, uh, while Piper is on his stall. Flair sprays Piper's gloves with something. Bagwell then starts selling his eyes, so we meant to believe it's like a deep heat spray or something. Bagwell goes down. Sorry to interrupt, Dean. I just got to say, so something put on his gloves to make his eyes sore, right? Yeah. I yep. saw symbolism number five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're on it tonight, Liam. Came prepared. Oh, I, I tip my Buff Bagwell top hat to you, yeah. sir. And we know you own one of them. You know it. Um, so, yeah, Bagwell goes down under a flurry of punches, goes down for a second time. He then comes back with a flurry of his own, and Piper slumps through the floor in the corner as the round ends. Round three begins with Piper attacking Bagwell in the corner before the bell's even rung. Judy Bagwell then jumps in the ring, and she bites Piper on the ear. Can you see where this is going with Mills Lane as ref? Um, she then sticks a bucket over his head. Bagwell punches the bucket off, scales the top rope and hits a buff blockbuster. And Mills Lane counts the three count pinfall in a boxing match to give Bagwell the win. Uh, Without hitting tell- the mat. It's the, yeah. You see the three count he does. It's almost like he a, does a, bo- a, am- a boxing amateur. three yeah. count, doesn't he? He does an old school British referee three count. Yeah. 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 Very Referees so. in this country never used to hit the mat. It was a, that was always an American thing. So world, some... world of sport free count. Yeah, world of sport free count. Now, there, there was many years ago, I think in the 80s or ni- probably in the 90s, actually, there was a, a British boxer, not, no one particularly big or anything, but his mum ran in the ring and attacked, started hitting the opponent with her shoe because it was one of those like grainy camcorder footage things. That I kind of I remember that, Dean, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, never bite you on the ear. But yeah, so so we've basically had a wrestling move to finish a boxing match that no one cared about in the first place. This when we talk about going out of your way to see the uh, junkyard match, people should go out of their way to always avoid this match. It is it, terrible. I mean, when has boxing ever worked in a wrestling ring? Bar maybe Floyd Mayweather. You think of the uh, you know the Piper Mr T match didn't really work. The yeah. stupid brawl for all that WWE did back in the day. Uh, I just... Holyfield Matt Hardy wasn't bad. I don't know if you remember that. 
I like that. I have, I have no recollection. Oh of that. Well, yeah, you know it was a, it was a terrible use for slip. It was it was on an attempt to revive Saturday Night's main event. That's what it, I was trying to think what it was on. Yeah, it was it was meant to be MVP and Matt Hardy had their you know at times quite entertaining feud of each other, and they where they challenged each other to beat each other in in everything like basketball, chess, and all that. So they changed each other to have a boxing contest at the Saturday Night's main event. MVP cries out, says he's got a, uh, a replacement, and it, obviously it's a ringer, it's fucking Evander Holyfield. So, babyface Matt Hardy says, you know, I'll, I'll go along with it, I'm not going to back down. And Holyfield schools him, but then Holyfield's like, you know, come on man, I'm hurting you here, I don't want to hurt, you know, I'm just being hired to, to win the boxing contest, I don't want this to go beyond like any sort of humanity and MVP's going oh, knock him out hurt him destroy him so Holyfield gets sick of it and punches MVP and the, and the boxer and the baby face so the the story of it was actually really good so I remember I that one that was my favourite yeah, one I've, probably I think the difference there is at least you've got a legitimate boxer when you've got Buff Bagwell and Roddy Piper in the same ring and <sighs> throwing throwing blows that are nothing like boxing I've ever seen Don't in my life. Don't let the Roddy Piper estate hear you say he's not a legitimate boxer. <laughs> and then you've got that bit at the end that Dean mentioned with the bucket that's like from a Benny Hill sketch. I Yeah, I hate <laughs> I absolutely hated this watching it and even Flair involved. I mean, because at the time Roddy Piper was Flair's number two in this uh, mock cabinet, wasn't he, at the time, which was a, a nice juxtaposition between the two as well because they weren't always eye to eye, but that's well, probably the only redeeming feature. Yeah, as as I said earlier, literally the pay per view before Piper versus Flair, and ba- mm. he, he turned on Bagwell and sided with the. So this is meant to be an old versus new, but this summarise it for you. This is this is pretty much the the last we see of this particular angle uh, over two months, where it could have been something that really got the company going again. And the last significant moment of it is a comedy boxing match where the the baby face who brings his mummy out wins with the bucket punch. Yes. That sums up how they screwed up. This is if if it sounds like I'm talking about this particular storyline a lot, it's because for me personally, we all have our own personal of oh yeah, this this moment was bad, this moment was bad. It really does annoy me that they didn't go for this in night nine. So, but on a personal level, I really would have loved to have seen them go with it. Now they, they had multiple chances to to elevate wrestlers in WCW, but this one for me is the one I I rue the most for whatever reason. It's just that it's the one that sticks in your craw. It no, it really is. Yeah, some people have other moments of the of WCW's downfall where they're like, that one really pisses me off that they didn't do better there. This one is the is the mischance for me. I I was really clamouring to see what was the revolution versus the the horsemen and the other veterans and 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 this is this is the upshot of it. Bagwell yeah. versus fucking Piper in the boxing match. Because it wasn't and, long after that they did the. Wasn't it when Ric Flair got put in the back of a car and drove in the middle of nowhere and got beaten the crap out of? Because that was still sort of lingering on from this angle as well. And I remember that being one of the best at the time. Really, kind of like, wow, this is this is really intense. I really enjoyed I that. Don't know if that was linked because that was uh, that that was a filthy animals, wasn't it? They stole yeah, his rodents yeah. and buried him in the desert like casino. That was that was Vince Russo. This was months after, and obviously you can't mm, okay. you can't you can't tie Vince Russo storylines from one week to the other together. Let alone <laughs> let alone yeah, a true. Vince Russo idea to something done in another administration. So, yes. unfortunately, there's no. Oh, and by the way, the boxer is Tony Wilson, former British light heavyweight champion. 
Ah, okay. And the clips on YouTube. Excellent. Okay, look up Tony Wilson's mum. Um, and then, yeah, I'm just not like that. Um, and um, <laughs> the uh, the Evander Holyfield Matt Hardy thing was 2007, by the way. Uh, it's worth a yeah. watch. You, you know, if you're a hard, and you have to be a hardcore wrestling fan to be listening to this fucking podcast. Yeah. If you are a hardcore wrestling fan, it's worth a watch. I really, you watch yeah. worse stuff than that. I yeah. like it. So um, we then, um, oh, the other thing, I suppose, just just to finish off about the boxing match, it's something that I think I've mentioned this before, but it's a quote from Jim Cornette that always sticks in my memory. Wrestling fans want to see wrestlers have wrestling matches. So don't put a boxing match on because they're not going to want to see it. No, I didn't. Never again, please. No. So we then proceed to a lengthy video package detailing how we have got to our main event. Now, remember, the main event is where the world title is at stake in a tag team match. Um, Kevin Nash is now wearing a tie-dye T-shirt with the NWO logo. Worst on NWO T-shirt they ever did. What was, yep. it's like, it, was, it was like Van Hammer's knockoff. I don't know what was going on with that. Dude Love joins the NWO. Yeah. Yeah, Savage is uh, trying to look young, dressed all in black with his hair tied back in a tight black T-shirt. And amazingly, by trying to look young, has made himself look really old. I'm just going to say this one sentence and I'm going to just uh, let Liam speak because uh, I'll just say Nash accuses Sting of driving the Hummer. Who drove the Hummer? We still don't know. Yeah, well, this is two. I suppose before we get to the meat of the match, as Dean always does, I suppose it's worth looking at two key storyline elements in the build-up to this. In what was, you know, and this this was one of the worst times to be trying to watch the main event of Nitro when Nash was the chief. So such self-indulgent bollocks with Nash as the champion and as the booker, obviously. Obviously. But yeah, one of them was an attempt at suspense. It was a who done it where, where Nash got hit by a Hummer while he was in his car, I believe. And yeah, infamously now in wrestling terms, it never got paid off. Uh, I compared it in a little chat to Dean the other day. I compared it to the the Black Scorpion thing where they started a mystery angle and they didn't know how to pay it off. But to WCW's credit, at that point, they actually at least they just went to their fullback Ric Flair. And at least paid it off, even if it was underwhelming and made no sense. At least they did something with it. They just dropped this. They, you know, they just ADHD'd it. And Russo hadn't even shown up yet. You see, this is this is what I was, I was just going to say. This is what I don't understand about that. Because in, in the small amount of booking experience I've had in my wrestling life, whenever I've booked a storyline from start to finish, I've always started at the finish and worked the story backwards. So, yeah, you've got to know what the, the end result is, what the payoff is, and then you work out how you get there to the start. So, again, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You'd start off this angle, like the Black Scorpion, like the Hummer, but you wouldn't know how it how it ends, because to me that is just literally, you know, it's arse about face. Well, they had that small note, didn't they, later on when Bischoff came back and he was in the White Hummer and it was meant to be the sly nod to... It may be him, but then again, it, it didn't actually make any storyline sense because Matcha Man goes on about it being his bodyguard and, and blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there was that one-off, he cut a promo on Nitro, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. Oh, my bodyguard's going to be here next week and he was the one who drove it. And that was it. They didn't even refer to it again, which is just a, <laughs> just a, just a repeat of, of the 
ignorance that we we've had so far like up to bash of the beach there's another subplot coming into this and i'm sure most people who are listening also watch botchamania uh one of the famous tropes on botchamania is when someone corpses and laughs when they should when they should be serious but they let a little smile crack and matthew always does his uh send for the man thing with a clip of macho man storming into a room and roughing up his valets uh and this was in the, the build-up to this match where he has uh he's doing a domestic violence thing which is always a wonderful thing to see on national television <laughs> indeed yeah in your uh, main event obviously yeah. he's got his he, he's got his team he's got medusa he's got miss madness and he's got his his real life girlfriend gorgeous george his uh 23 year old stripper of a girlfriend you think he's and, and porn star you think his black dye is a desperate attempt to seem young and you just look at his uh his valet slash girlfriend um and he's doing this thing where he started to knock her around and she goes running to kevin nash because kevin nash is such a a geezer he's such a he's such a player and, right, he's he's and apparently yeah and apparently he, uh, he he won a match where he got a night with tory wilson and yeah. tory wilson liked it so yeah i wonder who's writing this crap um but yeah so that that um send for the man thing is this angle uh there's that infamous part where he where tory wilson they use that clip he uses that clip matthew because tory wilson cracks a smile and he smacks her in the face basically to, to get her to stop smiling when she's supposed to be terrified so he's he, he's abusing his group of women and case in point there's no gorgeous george she comes out with nash or belatedly comes out with nash sporting a black eye sporting yeah. a black eye which is symbolism number six <laughs> uh you yeah you've thought about this symbolism more than the book has thought about this pay-per-view i think <laughs> i'm symbolism number yeah. seven dean <laughs> so um it's a tidal yeah. weight of trash <laughs> <laughs> yeah this, this match still doesn't make any sense even to tony shivani says you know that he could un- yeah we, we can understand it being a four-way match but a tag match you know why why would you let your tag partner win the title um fans are chanting for goldberg before the match begins he he obviously isn't there and then, as we've said savage's got th- three women in his corner now I, I don't know if if the fact that savage has this mini harem of women is another thing to placate his ego and tell him he's not getting old i, I don't know but um Sting starts the match, and when he started the match, I then thought to myself, well, why would he ever want to tag out? And he's against uh, Sid. I've never seen anyone not improve one single bit over the years like Sid. He was just, you know, when he, he just never added any moves to his repertoire. He was never any good at selling. He was just consistently awful. He just, you know, he looked the part. And when he, when, you know, when he started out, he was very charismatic but by this and you know had a, a sense of menace about him but by this point he barely had any of any of that um so this is a, a very plodding main event with a reasonably non-responsive crowd despite the fact that all the participants were established main eventers although maybe that is what the problem is as we've we've touched on earlier yeah that is the problem with the whole show really think about it yeah um finally nash gets in he takes over on both savage and sid he then makes an aggressive hand slap of a tag to sting but shivani seems to think it's them being on the same page i saw it as kind of reluctant and aggressive myself 
Um, the women get in the ring. Sting cracks Medusa and Miss Manus's heads together before giving them both Stinger splashes. So a bit more domestic violence there. Um, Savage is fighting in another coin with Nash. Sting goes to splash Savage, who moves, and Sting splashes Nash instead, even though Nash would have taken the force of it, even if Savage was still there, but he'd have taken more force, so that doesn't make sense either. Um, Sid chokeslams Sting, boots him out of the ring. The crowd chant for Goldberg again. Gorgeous George gets in the ring. She then low blows the supposedly heroic Nash as he prepares to execute a powerbomb on Savage. Sid slams Nash to set him up for the top rope elbow from Savage, who gets the pin to become the new world champion. Savage sits George up on his shoulder as he used to do with Elizabeth and uh, a banner that says Sid blows goats is visible in the background, <laughs> which just took my attention away. Sid this... is number 10. <laughs> yes. Um, a non... To me, this was a nonsensical plodding main event to finish off a nonsensical plodding pay-per-view. Um, I don't understand why Sid would just let Savage pin Nash and take the title either. That made no sense to me either. There's lots of things I don't. I mean, I think WCW was squeezing the ultimate white meat babyface stingness out of him. It's like Sting is one of my favourites of all time. He is the WCW babyface, but even in this match where he's meant to be a tag partner, why wouldn't he want to go for the world title as a competitor? Yeah. But are, we, are we ignorant enough to think, oh no, because he's such a babyface, he's going to stick to the tag team rules, which he does in fairness. I think he's the only person that WCW could have got away with in this stipulation and make it even believable to a point of making the match. Um, but it's just, again, it, it's like you say, plodder was the word I've written down. It's so ploddy. It has the worst low blow. I think she tries to do it twice. Gorgeous George, because the first time she doesn't look like she's quite done it right. So she does it again. I don't know if the camera angle was right or she was just an appalling performer because you never saw her again after this angle with Macho Man and stuff. Whereas Medusa obviously is, is quite the legend and Miss Manners went on to be Molly Holly. But nonsensical in every aspect. Uh, terrible, terrible main event. Two, like, Nash was never a, a decent champion, never an interesting champion at that point. Savage, way past his best. Uh, so it was really non-interesting from a point of a world title picture, which is why the fans were calling out Goldberg the whole match. And uh, I think at the time he was off filming a movie, if I, if timeline goes with it, with what I believe. So yeah, he made I, his return on a Nitro very soon after with Megadeth playing in the background. Um, and so he I actually, love that Megadeth they, song. Yeah, they actually used that Megadeth song. I've I very much liked it on Universal Soldier, which was the film he was recording. Funny enough. And uh, a couple of other films it showed up on. Did not like it as Goldberg's theme when he had one of the top five theme yeah. songs in WCW history. For Easy, fuck's yeah. sake, WCW. Didn't he fight Rick Steiner at the next pay-per-view, which was an odd move for him to come back into, if I remember rightly? Yeah, made for a pay-per-view. I mean, it's a, it's a good warm body for him to tear through as Goldberg. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I wouldn't want to see that on a pay-per-view. But you're right, I think that's exactly what they did. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, this whole pay-per-view, as I said, it was plodding. There there are no real standout matches. I mean, as you said, Ash, the tag title match was probably the best match on the card, but even that dragged in the middle. I mean, I wouldn't call it the worst WWE pay-per-view because we've ever seen because we've already sat through a couple of them. But it was it was poor all round, and to me it showed, yeah, the, the powers that be were sort of in... They, they were losing supremacy to the WWF and they were in a bit of panic mode. They didn't really know what to do. And to make things even more hilarious, 24 hours later on Nitro, Randy Savage would issue an open challenge for the title to anyone but Kevin Nash. Guess who answered it then? Kevin Nash. 
If there wasn't that music. Oh, <laughs> he's Hulk a American made. Can made, yeah. Yeah, so Hogan won the belt and would defend it against a heel Kevin Nash at the next pay-per-view. So they're basically just running through every nonsensical combination of the boys that Kevin Sullivan fears yeah. while, while keeping the boys that were getting pissed off with Kevin Sullivan the booker. And we've gone in two-footed many times on Kevin Sullivan's patsy booking here. And that will continue to be the case because it's blighted WCW for pretty much half of his existence but that's exactly what we were getting here and Bischoff would be fired within two months which is a shame because despite Bischoff having his flaws and really losing his way when WCW got hot it was obvious from when he managed to make WCW must see in the first place that he understood new talent and fresh action so he'd done it but then he just completely lost sight of what mattered and he started panic booking musical act after musical act throwing more and more money at it mm. it's interesting yeah. you say Liam as well about Kevin Nash he was so uninteresting at this point as well I know like you say he was booking it himself but the whole him being world champion I remember him being the one breaking Goldberg's streak and being absolutely gutted because I just never really believed in Kevin Nash I don't know what it is about him because he's a charismatic guy he's a big man he had a moveset but when he was world champion top of the card I never really bought it but never he, really always, he always thought he was better funnier and smarter than he actually was and he, to an extent, he was good. To an extent, he's a smart guy. To an extent, he's quite funny. But he always thought he was amazing. And he really fucking wasn't. Uh, Scott Keith used to refer to him, the, the famous wrestling writer, would call him Poochie. With a Simpsons reference. And I mm. thought it was a great one. Because Poochie was always a character that was deliberately written to be so cool and so great and so perfect when in fact it just ruined the dynamic of everything it touched. You know, it's one of the most meme-worthy aspects of the history of Simpsons. and He was the living embodiment of it in wrestling. And when you give him the, the pencil to actually book himself to be super cool and super great and put himself in the position where he even gets his own comic book strip, look that up on WrestleCrap, that mm. is incredible uh, for all the wrong reasons. Uh, that's what you get. You you get a gag reflex. But uh, Kevin Nash, of course, has not yet died on his way back to his home planet. But the, the thing with Nash, I suppose, is that to me, the two occasions, the two angles that he was really good to me was when he was in tandem with someone else, when he was in the WWF alongside Shawn Michaels as the bodyguard and then as the tag champs and then the feud that they had. And when he came into WCW with Nash as the Outsiders. Some of the parts job. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, but along the way, he was convinced by other people, including McMahon, the the booking committee at WCW, Shawn Michaels, the clique. And he's convinced that he was better than he was. And the result was toxic for the people whose money they rely on to keep going. And that's why yeah. they couldn't keep going. Yeah, I mean, for my money, the best match, the best sort of pay-per-view main event match that Kevin Nash ever had was the Survivor Series. I think it was, what, I can't remember if it was 94, 95 against Bret Hart. That or the street fight with Shawn Michaels. You remember that? That was a really good one. Yeah. That was on his oh, way out as well. Yeah. No, nothing from WCW, though. I, couldn't, I can't pick out a single match that I remember. 
even when even before he became in WWE as well. I just for me, he never really did it, did he in WCW? Yeah, that's a good. Point. I mean, the most the most significant match for me that he had in WCW was was the infamous Bash at the Beach '96 match. But he was again part of the, you know he was, a, yeah. he was a son of the parts sort of thing, you know. Right. Well, that brings Bash at the Beach '99 to an end. But before we go, of course, we always like to ask our guests to choose their favourite. WCW theme tune. So, Ash, what tune have you given us here? It's kind of ironic, just as we were sitting there slagging Kevin Nash off. And what, this, <laughs> this isn't intentional because I don't really associate it with him more than the group um, that it was aimed for at the time. It's quite a famous one, but it's one that I genuinely love. It's one probably a top three favourite theme tune of all time. It's the Wolfpack, baby. the Wolfpack theme tune it's it really was kind of really in the zeitgeist of the era where rap music was the in thing um I think it's I'm trying to remember who it's by is it someone like C Murder someone like that not someone very famous but I, I know I knew it so well that I knew the artist um but genuinely love it it's got that kind of the howling at the beginning and then the, the cool kind of kind of bouncy kind of line something like Nate Dog would have sung back in the day and I, I just love it it's one of those theme tunes that I still play uh, on my uh, on my iTunes or whatever your device is these days uh, on a on a weekly basis absolutely blooming love the song yeah uh, it was never really my cup of tea personally <laughs> but uh, yeah oh, you know this theme this whole faction was born out of this attempt to split the NWO which in a perfect world gives everyone involved something to do in the upper mid card while Goldberg is established as a new cash cow. But we obviously know now in hindsight that those very components of that civil war weren't going to allow it that, that way. Uh, I was never too much into the whole, I mean we, we just had the character assassination of Kevin Nash and the, for me the same thing applies to the Wolfpack per se, I was never really into the trying to be so hip and cool. When we did cover Bash at the Beach 98 on this very podcast we were talking about how Kevin Nash and Lex Luger came out to this theme and were your typical 40 year old men trying to look like teenagers and for me that's the Wolfpack. It's, it's, it's a very memorable theme tune. It suits them. You, you've got to give it full marks, in my opinion, for, for suiting the people it was made for. You know, Jim Johnson, the famous WWE music composer, would always say it's got to be an extension of the character of the entrance theme. And, and it was. 
So musically it was fine, but yeah, it was never one I cared much for. I would admit, um, Liam, that I was at, I bought into the Wolfpack. I was, you know, very few that, you know, at the time was actually, I agree with you looking back, that's exactly what they were, 40-year-old men trying to be down with the kids. Um, but I was such a Sting fan that whatever he did, I kind of gravitated towards. And although I was never the biggest fan of his red makeup because it makes him look just embarrassed or um, maybe just a little bit too, bit too angry in his red makeup. But I just, the fact that he was part of the group, Conan came in, and he was sort of deemed this cool kind of hip hop to give that Wolfpack essence and that Wolfpack tune a little bit more street cred. I, I kind of bought into them. And although it went horribly wrong with the finger poke of doom for that little bit while, bar probably Kevin Nash, who we've just lagged off, I, I really bought into the group. I actually own a Wolfpack T-shirt. Probably doesn't fit anymore, but I do own a Wolfpack <laughs> T-shirt somewhere. Just to let you know, by the way, I've looked it up. It was indeed performed by C Murder, composed by Jimmy Hart. There you go. He's down with the kids as well. Jimmy Hart down with the kids. But yeah. the thing, the thing with it as well is, it's it's one of the things I always say about entrance music. And it's something I when I'm if I'm, what one of the things I do sometimes I do like seminars with students about ev- everything to do with wrestling, bar the physical wrestling, because obviously that's not my forte. But one of the things I say about it is with music, and you want something that literally within the first one yeah. or two seconds grabs people and tells them this is so-and-so's music and that wolf howl you then you knew it was the wolf pack mm, mm. But, but to me by the time things got to the wolf pack stage and you got sting wearing the nwo logo i was i'd sort of had i'd lost interest in it by then because they'd got it gone on too long they'd got too big and all these people were switching sides and fragmenting and it, it lost it lost my interest by them I think a lot of my um, problem with WCW tunes back in the day was that you, you didn't, that was the problem, you didn't know who they were. I mean, TNA had that big problem as well. I think that's an issue for another day. But with that, you did. And it was like the, the Macho Man one at the time as well, who he faced in this when he came back and he had that weird, what's up, match? And they did the, oh, yeah, at the beginning of that theme tune. Because if you took that out, it was quite generic. But they started to actually add in things that made you think, oh, it's that guy. And, and there wasn't enough of that, I don't think, in, in this time of WCW. Definitely. M- musically, it was a it was a good composition for the group, but the group itself obviously did not age well. And they were with with people like Nash and Luger trying to act like they were nineteen. It weren't aging well as it unfolded either. Thank you ever so much, Ash, for joining us. It's been a blast. Yeah, thank you for having me, boys. I'm absolutely enjoyed that in the most terrible way possible. <laughs> Just remind people once again, Ash, how they can uh, find you on social media. Uh, if people want to talk to me about the Wolfpack and, and all their glory, um, I'll be on at Ashrose UK on Twitter and on Instagram. Thank you very much. We are on uh, Twitter at Because WCW and Because WCW um, Facebook.com slash Because WCW over on Facebook. Uh, as I said, you can download this on iTunes. And if you do it there, then please rate and review us. Plus, we're on uh, Podbean, Because WCW.podbean.com or you can find us as part of your package on the IWN, the International Wrestling Network at IWNlive.net. We will be back uh, very soon with episode number 12. Uh, We'll be looking at Spring Stampede 94, which is one of my favorite pay-per-views of all time. Uh, Liam, cheers for joining us once again, and I will see you at the WrestleMania party in Clapham. I look forward to that. I look forward to doing Spring Stampede. 
and I look forward to us getting a little bit of karma for covering all these turgid poles of dross. <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of Liam and Ash, this is the Twisted Genius Dino saying thank you very much for joining us, and I'll see you ringside.